you know, what do we want for Tampa Bay? We want the economy to grow. So there's more opportunities and a better life available. So to use your bang your drum. So more people have freedom. And then it's up to them. You know, now that I have more agency, which would be the term of art, I can make better decisions. And if I decide to be selfish and whatever, then, you know, that's on me, but we should also say that's ugly, you know, mm-hmm. but, but let's also say more what's beautiful, you know, so how can we reward business? That's just uplifting. Well, welcome once again to another work ethic podcast, and I'm really excited um, to be talking to Jay Hine today. And if you guys don't know who he is, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just run through this litany of things. So uh, let's see. Jay was uh, at one point, was this uh, working with the Wisconsin state government as a policy director um, redesigned and implemented uh, what, what actually was Wisconsin's welfare replacement program. Uh, I'm going to kind of just jump down here. There was once uh, as executive director of a civil societies program at H- Hudson Institute, um, working on welfare at a welfare policy center. Uh, they had uh, faith and community initiatives, healthcare reforms and programs, was the VP and CEO of the Foundation for American Renewal. Um, where we're doing the thing that stood out to me in the description of that was so, okay, providing grants to community based organizations and educating the public on effective compassion principle and practice, which I'm very excited to ask you about. Um, then Jay was the founding president of the Sagamore Institute for Policy and Research, an international public policy research firm headquartered in Indianapolis. That's where you are now, right? You still in India? That is correct. Nice. That's home. And then in 2016, Jay was named the deputy assistant to the president and the director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. He worked in the White House with the president to implement around uh, a compassion agenda and to engage public-private partnerships with faith and community-based social services and social service orgs around the United States and around the world. And now you are, he's back at uh, the Sagamore Institute serving as president and is also the managing director of Commonwealth Impact Investment Investing, which is actually how I came to know Jay kind of through that uh, work and kind of the overlap of our work and social enterprise and impact investment. And that's how we kind of came to meet and know one another and are getting to know one another. And so, uh, so clearly you're very lazy and uh, are not living up to your potential. But Jay, why don't you, uh, apart from the like, bullet pointed thing here. I mean, this is just such a, uh, I just, I, I had to read through this entire list because I just thought it was ridiculous, but why don't you introduce yourself to everyone and just thank you for being here, man. Oh man, I'm really grateful, John. It's a lot of fun to, to hang with you. I am an admirer um, of your social entrepreneurship and well-being built bikes as a, as an enterprise. Um, and so to be able to hang with you is a, it's a lot of fun, um, but it's also what I get to do for a living. So I think that what you just read is um, is probably a lot more cohesive maybe than it sounded like. It sounded like a, a few different jobs and maybe different directions, but um, I've had a pretty pretty uh, straight line trajectory of uh, um, what I think I was made to do and, mm-hmm. and uh, honored to be able to, uh, um, to participate in, um, which is, um, getting after poverty with business solutions. That's a, a big part of it. Um, 
just hanging out with people like yourself saying there's just some things unacceptable um, in our cities. And so let's get after it. And let's realize that, you know, this American story of generosity is really, really impressive. Um, maybe we'll unpack some of these things down the, the road, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hitting some themes that really all my um, experiences included some variation of, um, but being generous isn't enough. You know, we got to be effective. Um, so what does it look like for um, philanthropy to be smarter social investment, for example, and for nonprofits to be better businesses? And, and so whether at a think tank or a foundation or government, um, these are the issues that I've been working on. And, uh, and that means I'm like a caddy, you know, hand in clubs to someone like you um, to, to hit the ball. So, you know, we're a support actor. Um, so it's really that the hero of the story is, is, is the person life on life, um, and either changing lives or changing places, um, or both. And, uh, those are the people I admire and I've gotten to serve them, um, one degree or another, and it's great fun. Man. I, now, and it might, it, it, you, you're right. It probably did sound like a scattered list of things, but it wasn't it might sound that way if, as audibly, but reading through it, I was like, man, the, 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 and I, it's funny because it's like, there's this intersection of just kind of faith and politics and policy. And, and like, I mean, just looking at your work over the time is very clear, like how they just stacked one to the next to the next to me reading through it. And I, and I, I look forward to kind of unpacking some of those, but as we, as listeners are getting to know you um, and because the theme of this show is really around your own relationship to work. Um, and I'm interested to hear if you think back to your earliest memory, uh, let's say when work as a word took on meaning in your life. So like what's as far back as you can remember of learning what work is. I would say my parents, mm -hmm. um, example. So, um, I, was um, the son of two educators. Um, so my dad was a guidance counselor at the high school and my mom taught kindergarten on an Indian reservation. Where'd and you guys so, live? Northern Wisconsin. Okay. And uh, so I knew that they went to work and I knew that they really liked their jobs, mm -hmm. which is cool. And that their jobs had purpose. You know, they, they, they didn't come home talking about um, I hate that I have to go to work. I'm sure they had some, some lousy days. Um, but so they made work look like a, a good thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but they didn't talk about work. I'm not even sure I heard the word, you know, when I talk, when I listened to them talk, um, they talked about the kids, you know, they talked about, you know, what, what kind of, impact they were either having or trying to have. Um, you know, my dad talking to kids about um, work, um, actually, um, you know, hey, it's okay if you don't want to go to college you know, as a guidance counselor, because you're made to, you know, pursue the trades or serve in the army and, you know, just finding highest and best for people, you know, and leaning into that. So, so he was a vocational counselor you know, work counselor as a guidance counselor. So I learned a lot about, you know, it's like, hey, there's, there's no one way to do life. And there's, you know, we all have different sort of gifts. So I, I learned from that, which was cool. 
Um, I learned from my mom who um, worked in a pretty tough neighborhood, you know, Indian reservations are um, beautiful properties that are um, trapping a whole lot of special people and bad um, lifestyles. And um, so she was a kindergarten teacher. So, you know, she had these bright, you know, bushy tailed kids coming in and, and uh, saw all the promise in them. Did have to ask some five-year-olds to take the snuff out before milk and cookies time, which is Jeez. something you don't always get in kindergarten. Um, but, uh, you know, but to see giving them promise, I mean, I can't walk through the Walmart in our hometown without the Native American, you know, shoppers hollering her name out, you know, because, you know, 40 years later, they're still talking about her. So, um, so I saw a really positive story of work with them. You know, I got to, I was probably a, a paper boy in my first job and didn't love on that, but it was, mm -hmm. so I learned, learned work that way, but um, yeah, had, had the typical, you know, kind of work experiences and junior high paper route, high school, you know, different jobs, but uh, um, got to participate in the system in a pretty, pretty traditional uh, mm -hmm. American teenager sort of way. Man, I love it. I love the, man, it's such a, an incredible, I mean, what a blessing, man. The, the kind of perspective and the impact from your parents and kind of like having folks that love their jobs and had a sense of purpose. I mean, even just looking fast forwarding to where we're at today, I go, hmm, they'll seem potentially connected, right? Thanks mom and dad uh, for the investment and thank God for the context within which we were able to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like all of that centered around employment. Um, and I'm curious about, and, and I'll just show my hand here. Like I have a little bit of a, and even maybe the theme of this show at some level is I'm trying to help rip the concept of work back from employment. So, you, you know, I work with a lot of folks. I walk with a lot of folks that don't have employment, but they need to work. Like they need to work, like they need to eat, right? You need to do something hard. You need to pick up, you need to take responsibility. Like, and there's plenty to do. And, and so often I'm, uh, I want to like push back on those early memories, not to push back on your memories, but let's go for deeper, further, like things that you might not be a job, but like, you know, something you had to like learning of doing hard things. So this could be a sport, an instrument, uh, you know, there's lots of ways that we work at relationships. We work at lots of things. And I actually, and just like, I, the reason I think this is really important, um, and folks that listen, forgive me. Cause I say this all the time, but it is like important to me is like, I know a lot of folks who don't have employment, but I also see technology eating employment in a lot of sectors and a lot of places. And I think the way that we frame our relationship to work, um, because not having something to do, not having work is I believe deadly and watching that among the community I've worked with and seeing like where it might be going. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, we need to establish a new language around our relationship to work, which is kind of why I was like, I want to start having these conversations. And so anyway, I, I get, I, I know you get what I'm saying and I want to hear you reflect a little bit more than on like the shaping of something like a work ethic in you at, at a young age. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had, a, you know, it's just, it carries the theme forward because, um, you know, my, the conditions of my birth, you know, were so favorable in this regard. It was a small town and, 
in all the best ways. You know, town of 7,000 when I grew mm. up, town of 7,000 today. I mean, you drive through it. It's really? Like, yep. That's the, you know, it's the same town, exact same <laughs> town. That's awesome. And, uh, oh yeah, same shops just about on Main Street. It's just, and, but everyone worked. I mean, you just, it's just what you did. I mean, because work for us, and as I said, I'm not sure I heard the term. I mean, I can't like place the term, mm-hmm. but, um, but everybody had something to do. You know, you, you, mm. you contribute somehow. Yep. And so one of the benefits of a small town is you actually are needed. Um, and so it's, you know, you got a role to play and, you know, expectations vary based on your contribution level. So, you know, kids have a role, you know, this or that, um, you know, can vary um, based on ability or, or whatever. But, you know, this, this inherent dignity of, um, you know what, you, um, um, you better, you better contribute, you know, like this is this, this, this is an us thing. You know, it, it's, and I won't be Pollyannish about it. You know, we had more than our share of problems and, and deficits. And, and yet it is the beauty of, of, a, of a small place where you just are neighbors, you know, and it's, you know, the, you know, my dad's funeral, for example, as a dramatic illustration, you know, the, um, the cleaning lady isn't the cleaning lady you know, she's the friend bringing over the casserole, you know, so in a big city, you can kind of live apart and there's a service class and a business class, you know, you can detach all these things and, and dehumanize and, you know, the, the, you know, just unfortunate sort of derivatives of that. Mm -hmm. But in a small town, it's just like, okay, you know, what do you do? And, you know, to contribute to the, to sort of the greater good here. And uh, so I, so I just, it was in the water you know, it's just, it's, what is your, your role? So that was, um, a gift, you know, sort of the gift of work that way, um, in that it's just about finding your place and it's about, you know, being, being a contributor, but on the Indian reservation to go back to my mom's place of employment, um, they had a lot of disincentives to work. Um, and the, this, the, um, safety net, if you will, that the, the deal we cut when we built reservations, um, was one of the um, greatest unintended consequences, perhaps, I hope it was all unintended, um, that um, marginalized that population. So for example, I mean, American Indians are the poorest group in America that nobody talks about. You know, it's an easy group to, to forget about or dismiss, but they are literally the, the most impoverished group. And the reason is, uh, largely twofold, just on economics, and that's what poverty is. Um, you know, bigger, bigger point that we'll get to, but just measuring it by math, um, they can't own stuff. So when they're on government land, and there's you know um, barriers to property rights and and other ways that Americans can gain wealth, and you're you know excluded from participating that way, that is going to trap you in poverty. And then when you get a um, subsistence check, um, that just disincentivizes um, um, wealth as well. So anyway, my, my point, I guess, staying at this part of the story of growing up in that environment, I did see two case studies, you know, one yeah. that said, well, of course, you're a participant. It's just what are you going to do to contribute? And the other is, of course, you're not much of a participant. <laughs> and, uh, and what I hated was, you know, going to school with um, 
friends from the reservation because they'd come to our school if they were a good athlete and or a good student um, and oftentimes a superior athlete. Um, and yet when it was time to go to college, that would be going white, you know, to kind of go to college and mainstream. So they'd go back to the reservation. And, and so you watch that and some people can be prejudiced against that and cynical about their bad character. Mm-hmm. Or you could just see how bad systems decay human dignity. And that's uh, later what I figured out is what was going on. And uh, so, so I grew up in a place where I saw um, not a very prosperous community, but a super healthy one. Um, the one I grew up in that, that built all the right habits mm. or rewarded all the right habits. And then one that um, was a basket case um, economy that was doing its best to trap people to stay in it. And uh, bad news. So can we pick at that a little bit? This is super fascinating. And I imagine will lead into a lot of, I mean, it, just the, the tale of two towns you just told is kind of like I could map to the rest of your life already. I'm like, Oh, this just makes sense. Um, but um, so one, there's some details in there. I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm aware of, and I think maybe lots of people aren't right. So, um, so we're familiar with reservations, right? And so, so those are government land. They're not owned by the tribe. Is that right? Well, yeah, there are different deals. Um, I mean, this, this really is, I wish I was more of an expert. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a um, impact investing area that we're moving into. So I am in learning mode myself. So I'm just scaling up, you know, none of this was discussed when I was growing up. Um, but there's some really good um, material that I'm, I'm starting to consume on this. Um, but, you know, if you just want to increase your blood pressure a little bit about, you know, things we've done wrong in our history. Oh, yeah, I love this. You know, we know that. Not that I love tears. that we did it, but I love hearing. You go, go on. You yep. go there, John. You go there. And uh, but, you know, the treaties, just the history of the treaties and the different deals we cut. Um, it's pretty ugly. And, and so there's a macro and micro narrative maybe there, you know, just, just generally how that happened, um, is not good. And it's a, it's a significant injustice that we really spend. It, it's curious, sort of intellectually curious why that's not a big part of our national conversation. I mean, it's a really big deal and mm-hmm. yet we really don't talk much about it. And had I not had a a mom who was in the middle of it and I did grow up with friends. I don't know that I'd be thinking much about it. Um, but nonetheless, um, that's a call that the macro narrative. The micro narrative is you have to, the deals are different. The treaties are different. Um, there's a, uh, our tribe, the one that I'm talking about was, was in the 1950s convinced to not be a tribe. So to convert from the reservation. So the first sin, if you will, was the mistreatment that marginalized them on reservations. Mm -hmm. The second one, because um, the housing boom post-World War II was happening and they had a lot of lumber, um, there was a move to shift from reservation status where the mainstream economy couldn't access the lumber to getting them off reservation status into normal county status of a state um, and the reservation that I'm attached to, um, 
um, did that. Um, and so that was a, you know, a manipulation in another form. Um, so my point is not every jurisdiction is formed the same way. And so I can't answer that precisely. Like it's not a the, blanket, like the Dakotas is different than the Seminole tribe in Florida is different from this other place, right? Yeah. That is correct. And how many there are in the particular deals they have and realize, by the way, since we're here in the, this, the depth of the story, mm -hmm. um, as they see themselves um, is, is with sovereignty. You know, mm -hmm. so they, they don't see that they're a subset of the population. They, they negotiated the treaties nation to nation, and they still see themselves that way. That's yeah. not literally how it works, but that's how they see themselves. It's all very, very fascinating. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, um, the um, overall point that you wanted to, to dig into is, is worth it by a lot, and that is to understand their lack of property rights. So, you know, mm -hmm. overarching how all these things are configured, it is their lack of ownership. That, yeah, is, that is what I wanted to pick at, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the best place to seek remedy. Um, just like I think the best place to seek remedy in the black and white wealth gap issue in America is in housing mm -hmm. because it was a black friend's grandpa who, because of redlining, couldn't buy a $25,000 house. Um, back then, may have been a $7,000 house or whatever, like my grandpa could buy. Right. Um, you know, that turned into a $25,000 inheritance for my you know, kindergarten teaching mom. Mm -hmm. You know, that may turn into a $150,000 inheritance for me at some point. You know, that $150,000 number, by the way, is the average net worth of a white person in America, $150,000 or white family. Maps in America. directly. That's right. Maps yeah. directly. And the average net worth of a black family is $17,000. So you can largely see that in the context of a house. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that the two objects that we're sort of painting here is um, that's not the only route to close the wealth gap, but that's a, it's a good way to understand how we got into the problem. And it's, it's a nice way, given the lack of homeownership, to see how wealth is built. Well, if that family couldn't buy a house because of redlining and an Indian couldn't own property because they're on a reservation that's government owned or reservation owned, um, there's, there's not a monolithic story here. So I'm, I'm not pretending it's a universal statement. It's a, it's a general and dominant statement yeah. that there is a lack of um, access to ownership. Um, that is, um, the biggest reason why Native Americans are impoverished. And, and if it's, I mean, it's kind of like the super welfare state, you know, you don't have to worry. We got you here. You know, we, and that's sadly literally true. And, um, but if, if, if you're being taken care of, um, that is, uh, it's a disincentive both legally and psychologically, you know, and just this whole victim, you know, um, care being, yep, go for well, it. I, I want to try to reflect on what you're saying in my own context a little bit. So, um, I mean, honestly, just like the, you know, the needs that we see with folks that are on the streets, and this is actually where well-built bikes emerged out of, I mean, we, we've been, the well has been doing like food to the hungry corporal works of mercy. Like 
I mean, look, your neighbors are hungry. You need to go find some food. You need to share some food. That just is what yeah. it is, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. all right, let's do that. Like I did that this morning. We went did a huge distribution in the community. We do every Friday morning. And it's like, yeah, have some groceries. Like they were, they're going to go bad. They're going to get wasted, whatever. And, and that's a great, for me, um, excuse to build relationship kind of in our work. But we did that for a long, long time. And eventually, I mean, it's exactly the way you said it. They, a lack of access to ownership where, a lack, lack of access underlies almost every concrete need we see. It's like, well, uh, you, you, um, <laughs> so, so transportation was one of the things that in a spread out urban sprawl city, we're like, man, I mean, the guy that has a bike at the homeless drop-in center seems a lot better off than the guy that doesn't. Right. And so, and, and, uh, actually want to circle back to something you said, but like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll set that aside for now. Um, cause it's my brain anyway. Um, but we're like, okay, so if we can help give folks access to a means of transportation, well, then that gives them freedom and it gives them access. And so, because, you know, you hear like, well, teach a man to fish, um, and he can eat for the rest of his life. But I'm like, not if he's not allowed to get to the pond, like if he doesn't have access to the place where the fish grow, doesn't matter what he knows or what you teach or whatever. And so I felt like, well, that's a good way to address that. And it's a good way for me to say, look, you earn a bike with us and, you, and then you can pedal wherever it is you need to go. Um, and then on the flip side, I, we, so you lack of access and ownership in the reservation. And I go, okay, that makes sense as like the thing that underlies all concrete needs at some level. And then I go, and then you're like, well, and then maybe underlying those, access things is like, okay, systems in place. You said, oh, it's like a super welfare state. I want to, we can get to that. I'm sure we got plenty of time. We can unpack all this, but like at some basic level, just relationally, I know things are, it's, it does seem intentional, almost conspiratorial in a way like, wait, so if, if I hire you, you lose your, so, so there's a way in which it's like, well, I can't work. If it, unless it's under the table, because if I record any revenue personally, like I, I, or, or, or I've known families where the best thing to do was for the father to go away. Right. Where it's like, actually I need to leave. So these folks can be taken care of because I love them. Um, and, and just in a relational situation going, you know, I just want to go, wait, I don't know about all this systemically. I just see it at like some concrete neighborhood level going, wait, what's, what's behind that. And then you go, okay, you got systems that create these issues that then generate like, yeah, this dude needs a sandwich or a shirt or whatever. And the stack of those, anyway, I just wanted to kind of take what I hear you laying out and go in my own context, just to go, it's not just in the reservation. And then I'll kind of let you just continue. But I, I wanted to kind of, I don't know, regurgitate it back and see if I'm tracking with what you're saying. Oh, hundred percent. And, you know, of course, growing up in this environment, I understood zero of it, you know, it was just all raw inputs. Mm -hmm. um, but um, to kind of personalize it, I, um, I got on this track vocationally mm -hmm. um, when I read the story of William Wilberforce in college. Mm -hmm. So he was um, a member of the English parliament who led um, a multi-decade effort to abolish slavery in um, 
the British uh, Empire, mm -hmm. and he did it as an out, um, output of his faith. You know, so yeah. he just really felt like that was what he was made for. And I became very serious in my faith um, in high school. So I um, grew up in the church, um, but it was a Sunday morning deal. Mm -hmm. And then it became very real for me um, in high school. And I wanted to be a 24-7 Christian and um, thought that that meant, you know, that you become a pastor or on world missions. And, and uh, oh, yeah. I'd have been fine with that, except I was also really good at golf. And so I wanted to play golf until I couldn't beat people. And then I'd go to seminary and be a pastor. But then I read <laughs> William Wilberforce and I thought, wow, you can practice your faith um, in other jobs. And so um, I thought I'd kind of had a nudge toward public service. And I thought, well, maybe I could, I could be like that and you know, do the kind of work that he did, which brings us to the issues you were just teeing up about the welfare state. So, um, so I was able to think about these systems issues very early on in my career because I um, was able to work for my home state in Wisconsin um, on welfare reform. So, so we had for 60 years um, operated a welfare system that started as a really good idea. You know, in, in the Great Depression, aid to dependent children, as it was called, Franklin De Delano Roosevelt invented. Um, interestingly enough for this story, um, there were a bunch of University of Wisconsin economists that helped him design that, the New Deal. Um, and so the progressive politicians of that day were um, um, inclusive of a, a number of Wisconsin leaders, which was just kind of interesting, um, given what happened 60 years later um, in Wisconsin to kind of change direction. but. Um, but nonetheless, what they were saying is if you're a single mom, you're abandoned or widowed, and you are not able to participate in the workforce by definition in 1933 as a, um, we ought to be there for you as a society. You know, we ought to give you a chance to stay alive, you know, and to keep your kids alive. And, um, and so the safety net was born. And of course, there was also child labor laws and these other really remarkable things that brought us from kind of a barbaric, um, you know, early industrial period to actually a civil one. Um, and aid to dependent children, that program was a part of it. FDR, when announcing that program said, be careful with this. I mean, we're in the middle of a depression, coming out of it, you know, taking care of people that need help, but it can become a narcotic is the term he used, FDR, mm -hmm. when announcing the welfare program. Um, saying we can never become addicted to this stuff. Um, and so future generations of policymakers did not get that memo um, because we started scaling a lot of public assistance programs. I'm sure every single one of them well-intended. You know, I, I don't think, you know, mm -hmm. no conspiracy there. It was just a, a view of the world, which was let's change the aid to dependent children to the aid to families with dependent children and let's both expand the welfare state, but let's also be really careful that there's no fraud here. So let's impose a bunch of rules like don't have a car because if you're rich enough to have a car or a nice car, then you don't need welfare. So, but of course, if you don't have a car, I mean, these are eventually the people you had to get bikes. Like, you know, people need transportation, you know, or don't get married because if you can get married, 
then um, you ought to be able to figure it out. And so let's make sure that we're only going to get benefits to the people who aren't married. So, so you had these disincentives against healthy behavior that would have helped the uplift with, again, well-intended policymakers saying, let's be helpful, let's be generous, let's avoid fraud, let's X, Y, and Z. And the soup that they made tasted awful to everybody. Um, and so by the 1980s, Everyone hated the welfare state. The welfare state was good for zero people. But what you didn't have consensus about is what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to work for a governor in Wisconsin, Tommy Thompson, who took a lot of the lessons I was talking about at the top of the podcast, um, small town values, and saying, how about we just imply some common sense here? You know, and John, instead of us sitting down at a computer terminal and you proving to me how poor you are so I can get you qualified for stuff, which is the job of an income maintenance worker. That's what they were called. Like, let's mm. figure out your levels of uh, eligibility here because I want to get you as many things as I can, which isn't horrible by definition. But in the grand scheme of things, what I'm doing is keeping you in a place of dependency, um, as opposed to me saying, John, um, what do you want to do? You know, you good at anything, you know, do you, and can I, can I assess your competencies and can I build a system that would empower you as difficult as it may be, because maybe you weigh 350 pounds and that's pretty hard to do life with, or maybe you've never seen someone work in your life, or maybe you're battling an addiction, maybe you got stuff, you know, we're gonna have to work through that. But how about the directional emphasis is you, you know, getting out of that and, you know, getting a little more healthy. So that's a different way to approach the game. And Tommy Thompson built a welfare reform agenda based on some core principles like, we think 100% of the people in this state can contribute something. Um, now, we don't know what they can contribute, but we're going to start with that presumption and we're going to figure it out. And we're going to have to do some tiers here because some people that go to work, maybe we're going to have to pay them to go to work. Like maybe nobody would ever hire them. Um, but maybe we would do that and say, John, if you want welfare benefit, how about you go do 15 hours of something mm -hmm. at some place and you'll get your benefits like that's, you know, but let's give you the dignity of that. And then maybe you're actually going to figure some stuff out that you're more capable or you're going to acquire some skills so that maybe somebody actually would pay you for that. So, um, so that, that led to this remarkable moment in our nation's history where this tiny little homogenous state um, proved that was a good thing to do. Our welfare rolls went from 100,000 families to 7,000 families. Um, poverty went down, you know, wages go up. Wasn't a universal success, but it was very successful and it changed the federal law. So the federal law became the Wisconsin model. Tony Blair adopted the Wisconsin model in Britain Israel, Germany, um, because it did two things really effectively, the Wisconsin model. One is it helped poor people become not poor and it just helped them be better assimilated citizens. Um, and in the end, it actually created a more rational welfare state, you know, so that you're spending money on the right things. Like some people actually really need a lot of intensive help, you know, or different types of help. Um, well, now we're not paying people who don't need it, really. Um, and we are paying people maybe even more 
who do really need it. Like it just rationalizes. Again, not perfectly, um, but directionally for sure. So that was my first job. And so I, I learned a lot about systems. So this tribal issue, set of issues, I better understood after I worked it through, having done welfare reform and thought, I went back to foreign aid, where I do a lot of work in Africa and the tribal issues and thought, hmm, same story. You know, if, we, if we're doing relief, we shouldn't expect development. Um, relief is intended for relief. Um, and there, you made the point earlier, there is what you did this morning is noble and it's beautiful and it's good for your soul and it's good for their stomachs like that. That's good stuff. Um, you know, doing that for somebody that doesn't need it, you know, bad idea. Um, and, and yet, you know, when you build these systems, foreign aid, parts of philanthropy, parts of the welfare state that become corrosive because it takes someone's dignity and it, um, and it doesn't create conditions for uplift. Um, we just have to know where that line is. And, but then we're not done. And that was kind of my, what got me to next. And I was able to work at a think tank and take things beyond the public assistance reforms that I was working on because two things I discovered as I was working out this welfare reform activity. One is this is actually a private sector conversation. You know, this is about mainstreaming with like employers and in communities and, and then this like painfully obvious, never really ever heard it in my life point before that enterprise beats poverty. And if you sort of camp on that thought, of course, I mean, it's the only thing that has ever beaten poverty in human history. You have to um, create in a bad neighborhood, say, in a poor neighborhood, um, conditions where businesses can actually come and do business, you know, because that's going to circulate money in a neighborhood that's going to become less poor and a better place to hang out and buy a house. And, you know, so that's an economic story. And for the person, um, you need human capital development because you need that person to be able to participate in the economy. Well, if you don't do those things, if you don't work on a poor neighborhood as a broken economy that needs to be repaired, or the person as a low performing economic actor that should be a better performing economic actor, um, you're going to keep poverty around at large scale. And so, but you can start chipping away at this thing. Um, in Rwanda, where I've worked and saw post-genocide, this exact playbook go to go into action. And it was just sort of this, wow, boy, it's really good for us to get relief and development right, um, because we should not be anti-relief. Um, you know, all of us need relief at some point. You know, we all got stuff and we all need help. And um, But it's more acute for somebody that has, you know, three dozen deficits, you know, that, that I don't have. And, and so, so there's that. And then the other thing was government was not going to be a really good um, poverty fighter. You know, we needed government to do some of the relief. We needed it to not incentivize poverty, which, which, which it was kind of doing. Um, but who does um, fight poverty well? Well, it just so happens that Wilberforce was onto something, you know, that he was a part of this grand tradition where um, people of faith are leading the pack. They're not exclusive, of course. There's people of goodwill and so many different types that are willing to be super sacrificial and run into the fire and, you know, love brokenness to help repair happen. But there's a disproportionate number of people of faith 
you know, Jesus commanded his followers to love neighbor as self. And the church said, amen to that for centuries. Um, you know, and it's just this millennia, this is powerful narrative, um, which we can get into in a historical context, but data proves it, you know, faith is the number one predictor of giving and serving in America. So as I was processing that and, and, and seeing what that really looked like, it again was kind of a hiding in plain sight story um, because there were people like you, John, you know, in every neighborhood um, fixing something or building something. Um, But the, you know, kind of the grown up fancy people on, you know, New York and Washington and set, you know, organizing our national conversation and setting policy, they were kind of stuck in the, in the, um, kind of industrialization mode, meaning society is so big and complex. We just need to deal with the really big systems and the really big funding sources and the really big this or that, but that's just not how you fix problems. You fix problems, life on life, you know, in places. And so how could we create, but every one of those objects are small, like they're individual unit sized. So, so how can you create a narrative about how these small parts roll up to a bigger narrative than the United States government? And so that takes us into a different chapter, but, but this, the power of faith in action to, um, to help somebody become um, a fuller understanding of Imago Day and how they're made in God's image and they're full of dignity um, is captivated me. You know, so I wanted to be in the business of helping people that were doing that kind of work. Um, so at a think tank and eventually in the White House, that was my job. Man, there's so much in all that. Um, God, good. I'm curious, something you said a while ago um, that I can't quite shake personally. Um, and you said like something about economics. Well, that's what poverty is. Um, I've struggled with an economic definition of poverty personally. Um, and, and I'll just, I'll just, I'll start with it, I guess what what my, what, because I actually understand poverty. It is economic, but it's lots of things, right? So like, I would say addiction is poverty. And the, and the, and the reason is um, a lack of freedom. So you said, well, you, you know, the image of God. And I go, well, you were made to be free. So the bike, why do I love the bike? Like, what if someone sells it for crack? I'm like, I'm not their dad. That's a terrible idea. They can't get another one, but that's fine. It's not fine. It's a bad idea. Or our, the way when we do our groceries, you know, a lot of like uh, pantries will be, you know, you can take two of this and one of that and you can have this and it's in a signed grocery bag, which I, I personally just, I was like, I'll never do that. I, we almost built our thing to be a protest to that. Like, we're just not doing that. Um, but I was like, yeah, if you want to fill your shopping bag with chocolate bars, you're an idiot. And I'm going to tell you that, but you're free to do it. And the only way you're not free to do it is if there's 30 other people wanting some chocolate bars and you're being a jerk and I, that I, I have to step in on, but like, and so I've, I've always framed it as, as, as a lack of freedom. And I do think at some like theological level, I believe that deeply. Um, but I also think it's helpful individually, like for those listening and whatever is like, you know, what it's like to be stuck in a situation, to be, to not be in control of something, to be 
under a power greater than yourself that so in all of these ways like in every way that you don't you don't know freedom then you are familiar with poverty and the the, that gives an ability for all of us quickly to empathize with the condition, which is often expressed in economic terms, like, oh, you can also be out of money. Although I've known people with no money that are the freest people I've ever met. And I've gone, man, like Gandhi, Jesus. I mean, even some of the heroes of faith, they, they liberate to the point of like Gandhi at the time of his death. I actually have this somewhere. Yeah, right here. So this is a Gandhi's autobiography and I'll just show you this real quick. Maybe you're familiar, maybe not, but um, so those listening, it's a photograph here. I'll show you real quick. You see that that's a picture of Gandhi's possessions at the time of his death. So there's a journal, a pot, a bowl, uh, two bowls, a little watch and two pairs of sandals and glasses. Um, And it says Gandhi's possessions at the time of his death. Well, I'm like, well, that looks a lot like some of my friends on the streets worldly possessions (laughs) although i actually think those are on opposite ends of the spectrum of what would be poverty and freedom because one is like a vision of liberation and one is a vision of a condition that almost enslaves so now i want to come back and go because that i just couldn't shake like economics that's what poverty is and i wanted to just put that to you and then let in here here you unpack that a little bit yeah thank you i i almost qualified myself as those words um, came out of my mouth because you are correct and I want to I want to go there okay um, but I first want to say that doesn't mean I don't believe what I said on the front end meaning that oh the it, point I was making 10 minutes yeah. ago <laughs> is that there is a math component to poverty mm-hmm. um, you know there's a there's a certain threshold with which um, um, a zip code say um, has a per capita income, you know, of let's say twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Another zip code five miles away mm-hmm. has a per capita income of one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. That is a we would call that a poor neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, which is a form of talking about poverty. I would like to talk about that not as a poor neighborhood, which conjures some notion of sympathy or again, prejudice or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk to my friends about the fact that that economy is broken mm-hmm. and that economy needs to be repaired. And so treating poverty, not as a public assistance program or as a place of philanthropy or as a place of laziness or whatever, I want to reconfigure yeah. the conversation and say, there's an, there's an economic narrative here that we need to look in the eyes and then ask questions like, why can't? money go to work there the same way it can why can't people go to work there and you know because of the broken economy and let's talk about how to repair the economy um that's the point i was trying to make plus pawn shops and liquor stores have no problem investing in those neighborhoods they they don't and but there's capital and, that gets deployed because there's money to be made well um, but you're yeah. but, but, but i think the point you're making is right like it has to get something has to be invested or activated or or built correct right and and pawn shops and liquor stores are one of the reasons the people have per capita incomes lower because um and this is the conversation i love having and this is why making it an economic narrative gives us a different conversation so mm-hmm. so i may have 
I may have done this with you before, John, we were just hanging out. So if so, just be patient. And, oh, and I'm pretend. good. Repeat yourself all day. I love listening. Yeah, to exactly. But it's, it's one of my favorite little exercises when I talk about American poverty, which is very different than African poverty, say. Yeah. But um, so let's take your neighborhood, university, mall, mm -hmm. um, and, and go a square mile around you, which is, you know, by and large, and maybe this isn't the exact right place in Tampa, but pick the worst one. Um, pick the worst square mile. Not a bad place. And, yeah. and then let's, let's take that square mile and then go take some fancy suburban square mile. And it is stunning, uh, counterintuitive, to know that the, um, the per capita income that we were just talking about, which is much lower in the impoverished neighborhood would have a cumulative value every year more than the rich neighborhood, um, which is just like ridiculous. How could that possibly happen? Um, well, it's density. You know, you, there's a lot more people that live in a um, inner city square mile. So their $20,000 yeah. per capita income which is an impoverished way to live. Um, if it was just cash, if you were running that square mile as your business, your income statement, your, your cash in, yeah. would be more money than the place that has $150,000, but they have really big yards. You know, so they're just, there's just not as many of them. Um, and, and the reason that story is more than just kind of a parlor game, um, like that's funny that there's more money there. It's just like, wait a minute. Um, you know, that, that money in that zip code that's impoverished is hangs around for about three hours, <laughs> that dollar, you know, cause it, it just pours out because, and this is the segue to why you were correct about the definition of poverty is because they live with a short-term mindset, not a long-term mindset because they have to lend at a place like a payday loan yeah. operation, which is eventually going to charge 300%. Um, this other guy's making 300% on some hedge fund deal that he has access, you know? So we're so inequitable because our economies reward different stuff, you know, flaming hot Cheetos at the gas station, as opposed to fresh pine, popular. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I mean, we know this to be true. Yeah. Um, and we also know that human choice is involved in this and that, mm -hmm. but there are systemic issues that are worth, getting smarter about and doing business with. And so the fact that it's an economic equation is helpful to get poverty out of a, because most people think of poverty as relief. Mm -hmm. What should we do about it? They think of it as the, you know, the church's pantry or whatever. They think about it as government public assistance. They think about it as lazy people or whatever yeah. the, yeah. you know, the dark side is. Um, they don't think about it as something to repair and, and that could be a place and a person equation. Um, that was my point, yep. um, but it's an insufficient point. And I would agree with you heartily that the better, fuller definition of poverty is bigger than economics. Um, there's, we could talk about spiritual poverty. We could talk about relational poverty. I think that, you know, friends of mine say that homelessness is not lacking a place to live. It's lacking a friend, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a relational capital that runs out. Um, and so you are correct. 
John. You win the, uh, well, the argument. Well, it's, well, it's, I, it's absolutely I, I, correct. I knew better and was trying to extract that a little bit. But like, by the way, because a lot of those people that listen. Um, so you're right. Uh, Jay had I heard him kind of run through this exercise once before. And so afterward, and I still have these notes, I went home and I took exactly the zip code that you're talking about, uh, just the entire zip code, uh, which we've known historically as Suitcase City, which is 10.2 square miles. Because a lot of folks listening are in Tampa, you know, these neighborhoods uh, now being rebranded as Uptown, but this is the neighborhood surrounding USF University. And the uh, average household income in that neighborhood um, is quite low, not as low as 20, but, you know, uh, let's say high 30s. And then you have what's West Chase, which is just the suburb that I could find that had the closest. That was 10.2 square miles. West Chase was 13.6 square miles, so slightly bigger. Um, And the average household income in that community is just under $100,000. Uh, so at least three X more revenue per household, but that number you're talking about, about the money coming into that chunk of land in West chase is about 360 million, kind of the paycheck. Um, and in suitcase city, uh, if this number is right, is 1.2 billion. Um, just to really drive home for those that are here in town and like that, just, it fleshed out immediately. Like I heard it, I went, that's absolutely right. Let me go back and actually pull the city da- data numbers to, to demonstrate it locally. And I've been thinking about it ever since. I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, and I, I hopefully for those listening, this was like, like a, a helpful uh, illustration. I know for me, uh, it definitely has been. I have a, a, another question about something you said earlier, because, man, when you were talking about this Wisconsin model, um, I mean... It's so moving, like to me and my own, like, so I'm, I'm pretty like unaffiliated with the government generally. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm not interested at all. Yeah. Like, I just want to work right here. Yeah. yeah I yeah, want to yeah. govern ourselves and work with my neighbors yeah. and that's what I'm into. Right. Which probably is typical for folks that are like me or whatever. But, but when you said, so at, you, John. <laughs> I wouldn't run and I would, and don't wish that <laughs> on me. Uh, there's a, a spirit of incumbency that I, I actually believe in deeply and, and am afraid of, uh, uh, although it, it also must be redeemed. But anyway, that, 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 as you flesh that out, I thought, man, this is weird to hear as like a governor proposing this. And actually, before you said like it was put into practice, it was successful. It changed federal law. I was thinking this is a fairy tale. There, this story is going to end with it didn't work or it was shot down. It was veto, like something happened because I mean, honestly, and I'm curious, I want to, I, I want to hear more because I'm like, okay, so I believe you that happened there, but I know from my own work. Cause I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'm like, I want to build a new economy and I want to work with folks here. And I like, that's exactly what I want to do. And it needs to be done relationally with personal responsibility for neighbors and communal work and that kind of thing. Like that's, that seems like it's going to have to be from the ground up kind of work, which is like, okay, cool. Like when you're like, when they would go from income maintenance worker to sit down and go, what do you want? I was like, well, that's the question of freedom. Like, what do you want? What are you good at? 
or even like yeah. your parents with the children going, well, maybe you don't want to go to college or maybe you're a tradesman or maybe you're an artist or, a, you know, whatever. And that is freedom and then right. responsibility. And so I'm like, okay, I believe in this completely, completely. But then you said it changed federal law. And I was like, wait, did it? And, and how, and like, have I seen this? It, can I recognize this anywhere? Because I, I can't say that that sounded super familiar. And if I, and I believe deeply that if I see it anywhere, I recognize it. Yeah. But I don't remember seeing it in any systemic institutional way. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. Like, what am I missing? Yeah. Yeah. You're, um, you're, you're pointing out that we live sort of in the land between. Mm. So, so let me first explain that um, something did happen um, in 1996 that changed um, our policies. So, so just to kind of go over the, fly over the arc of this story, yep. mm -hmm. you know, before the 1930s, you're on your own. Um, you know, this government wasn't there for you. And um, your employer could abuse you pretty seriously. It could be 12 years old, thrown in the sweatshops. And, you know, so, so we did a good thing in the 30s to create the New Deal, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, which, which made us a civil, you know, leading light, you know, sort of place. And then that scaled to become known as the quote unquote, the welfare state. Um, and if, if we were in a, you know, classroom at a whiteboard, so, you know, what, actually comprise the welfare state, you know, it's worth acknowledging as is not an easy answer to come up with, you know, do you count section eight housing or do you, you know, food stamps or Medicaid, like, you know, how much of this are we talking about? Um, for purposes of this conversation, um, we're talking about income maintenance, which is, do I pay you, a, you know, do I send a check to you um, because you, you're not working. Mm -hmm. And that is how most people think welfare is defined um, as let's call that the common man's understanding of, of welfare. That's what changed um, because um, what the Wisconsin model did is said, we're not gonna do that anymore. We're, we're not gonna send you something to do nothing. Um, we are going to, um, ask something of you for this benefit um, because it's for your I own good. It. I love it. Um, and that was made federal law in 1996. So Bill Clinton, um, you may recall, was a new Democrat. Um, so he was a governor when Tommy Thompson was a governor. They were actually uh, welfare reform governors together, if you will. Mm -hmm. And Bill Clinton wanted to prove that he was a new kind of Democrat to get elected. And so he became very tough on crime. That didn't work out so well. Um, that a lot of those policies led to mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a big campaign thing for him. And the other big campaign thing for him that was maybe the biggest brand when he was a candidate in 1992 was to quote unquote, end welfare as we knew it. That was his campaign slogan in 1992. And so um, when he became president, he did. He eventually signed the 1996 welfare law to require work in exchange for benefit based on the Wisconsin model. And he announced it. 
he endorsed the Wisconsin model. And now it would be fun to have the two hour conversation just on this because the politics mm -hmm. was actually fascinating. And, and two of Clinton's senior people resigned because they believed, thought it was cruel. And, and, uh, and, you know, that was all, it was all fascinating. And, you know, the sausage was being ground. So it's not like it was all, I'm making it sound so tidy, you know, cause I'm doing it in retrospect sure. and I'm, I'm giving you the themes. It was anything but tidy, but it is truth that the Wisconsin model was implemented um, in such a way that it inspired the federal law. And Tony Blair, cause I was on the team, you know, I was working with the British who were, you know, saying, look, we're European, like we invented the welfare state, like we're the best at it. Um, and like, everybody's a part of the welfare state over here. Like, you know, this is, this is a good thing for us. And so we're not going to be like you guys and we're not going to, but the way you've figured out this particular policy to help the poor, we're going to do that. And they did it. And, and, in somewhat funny context, they called it the new deal in Britain in 1998 or whatever, and they implement the Wisconsin model. So it's remarkable. So to your point, mm. um, yes, that's history that I think a lot of people don't know. And if you looked at, it's the 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary this year of the, the 1996 law. Um, so there's a lot of commentary bouncing around the, uh, the internet about, you know, how it's done. <laughs> and, uh, um, and the data proves less poverty, more income, more single women headed households in jobs. So, you know, to us, that's what we wanted to see happen mm -hmm. um, with the policy. But what didn't happen was what you're calling me out on, which is that I was casting vision for you a little bit um, in what we wanted it to be. And in practice, it hasn't become that. You don't walk into a welfare office, which today, I don't know what it's like in Hillsborough County, but there are one of our inventions was something called the job center. So the job center was a government operated building to do what I was casting vision for. So can one of your neighbors walk into a job center in Hillsborough County and have that person not sit at the computer saying, how poor are you? So I can qualify for others, but John, what were you, you know, mm -hmm. what do you like doing? And what do you, you know, hopefully some of that has happened. Um, and it wasn't happening before 1996 in Hillsborough. I understand. Okay. Well that, no. And, and in terms of like, that's helpful to go, this is the aim of that. And that makes perfect sense. Cause it's like, Oh, trajectory is everything. Like, where are we headed? Yeah. Because I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, you know, it's so funny to go, well, that's what, you know, there's a lot of us trying to do exactly that. Uh, yeah. without any, without any. Uh, well, and uh, resources or, you know, those kind of things that like, you know, to go, we have the staff, we need to meet with these people, but it's almost impossible to not turn those into just numbers rather than neighbors when it's so centralized rather yeah. than like a house in each community or whatever, like that, which is really like more of the, our version of it, right. Is like, this is all of us just like, look out for your people, uh, model that behavior. Um, but they're, but they're kept kind of at bay from one another in terms of the, the, the teamwork, maybe. That's so powerful. Uh, yeah. Let me double click on that one because mm -hmm. um, that's the best line that's going to come out of this podcast about <laughs> numbers, not neighbors, um, because that's, um, that's what government can do. 
and and this was the mm. point of my personal shift um and hopefully what societally we can get better at understanding which is that there is a play, there's a lot of conservatives that are anti-government um well getting rid of government's a really bad idea you know their government helps it in public safety and at basic levels um in a super powerful way letting government grow and do things it's not supposed to you know it's not built for um bad idea um mm -hmm. so so that's what we saw in the welfare reforms and this was really my big aha and and it was sweet for me in my personal narrative because i was inspired by wilberforce who did this whole kind of justice thing um but but it was also a bit convicting so we were like somewhat tempted maybe to spike the ball in the end zone in 1996 or seven or eight saying and if you read history a lot of governors did spike the ball in the end zone saying we won you know we, we beat we won the war on poverty like we, we did it um and then we realized that you know what we're actually doing nothing about the actual poverty which you were calling out earlier before mm -hmm. and are we really creating helping create healthier human beings you know who are suffering in poverty and absolutely not you know what our job centers were never going to be you know the answer you know it's just better than proving how poor you were and sending you a check but mm -hmm. you know it was only going to be this incremental step it was going to take a you know good-hearted patient employer that was going to be willing to work with an ex-offender somebody that had substance abuse or that had poor work habits you know this was going to happen out in the work sector and in the private sector but it also was going to be the the hero of the story was going to be literally people like you john you know people that were willing to see a neighbor not a number and and love that neighbor so much that you'd get in their grill and tell them they were an idiot for yep. filling their bags with <laughs> chocolate bars i love that um and <laughs> and then loving on them and you know getting over their addiction to chocolate you know so mm -hmm. you know that's only you could do that so so the big and impersonal of government should be in the transaction business and those transactions should be surgical strikes um, but the loving touch of the healer in the neighborhood was the hero. And so therefore, and this is, I don't want this to sound like a partisan statement, um, but, you know, George Bush, who I worked for, mm -hmm. um, understood that. Mm -hmm. And so he created the faith-based initiative to scale that, you know, so what he wanted to say was, the faith-based initiative is going to be about a couple of really big things. One is when we're going to when we look at at injustice or suffering, we're going to say that's unacceptable. That's that's not on not on our watch. Like we're going to get after it. But we in the White House or in the United States government will look first to a neighborhood healer mm. and see what we can do to help them. That was the vision. Mm -hmm. um, in many respects, that vision didn't work. In some re powerful respects, that, that vision worked beautifully. Yep. Um, and it's just hard to do it. It's hard to do it from the United States government. Um, and so we, we can get into that if you want. But in terms of this historic arc, yep. and this is the, the humbling privilege I received just as a young professional to be able to work on the state-level welfare reform saying, man, could we change these rules so that we could actually dignify the person at the other end of the desk. Um, and then to be able to pivot and say, that's the small ball, as important as that is, and it's not unimportant, it's important. It's way more important to know that there are people out in neighborhoods um, 
actually doing something about it. So that person doesn't show up at the desk, you know, because they're going to get healthy. And, and if we could hold their arms up to use a biblical metaphor, mm -hmm. um, we could, uh, we could be a better place to, to live, you know, in our society. And, and that's way better than the, somebody taking care of you. So, so that's what the vision was, man. So you're right. As you're kind of, this would be fun to talk about for two hours. And, and I'm like, man, I, I feel like I want to do this regularly because uh, there's so much to unpack, but I also know just keeping an eye on the clock, like I want to transition back to you a little bit and some of your current work and projects um, maybe. So let's say that's a, enough of the, the kind of landscape <laughs> of the, of the kind of the political arc and narrative and our country's wrestling uh, with our wealth and lack thereof in different communities and its distribution and whatnot. But like for you, I mean, as best I can tell, you found a very, you're doing the same thing um, at, a, at a different level to go, well, let's go into communities and go, let's find some people here that have maybe some resources, some know-how, some things like that. And let's see if we can't get them together and then work with some of these folks in the community and like, go, you know, it would be better if we like work together and locked arms and figured out a way to talk to each other, even though we maybe speak different languages or come from different sides of the track or something. And that's from my vantage point, but I, but tell everybody kind of what you're doing now and, and what are you spending your time doing these days? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, you might, you might see some, you might be able to do some pattern recognition here because um, it has been really iterative, you know, sort of um, learn some stuff and go and try and put that to work is, is, is a pretty good description of kind of what you read at the top, you know, the different privileges. And, and, uh, and so that has led today that to impact investing, you know, so I really feel like the field of impact investing is, um, is one of the best, if not the best ways to get after the biggest problems in society. So I, I care an awful lot about what I've always cared about, which are the, the least, the last, and the lost. They're my favorite people. Um, they're Jesus's favorite people. And I think you can argue in scripture. And, and, uh, and so I, I'm uh, um, most interested there. Um, but I, to answer your question, maybe a little bit more you know, sort of officially before I dive into impact investing is that I, um, I run two nonprofits. Um, one is a think tank. So I do a lot of policy work still. Um, it's a little different kind of think tank than you might think of. DC think tanks are typically political. They're typically top down, you know, scientific or, you know, white papers, you know, on the problems of the day. We're more action oriented, more entrepreneurial. So it's really more of a research and consulting business where we're helping entrepreneurs put their ideas to work and then get better at making those ideas actually work. So that's the reward we get is seeing um, impact, you know, sort of innovation flow from, you know, the, the entrepreneurs um, in society. So those could, we know there's some entrepreneurs in government, um, there's some in nonprofits and the church and in private sector. So it's my main job. Um, in as president of this think tank to find really cool entrepreneurs to serve. And so that led us to meet because you're one of them. And, and, uh, but, 
but that actually is really rangy stuff. Um, we work on national security, we work on education reform, we work on energy, new energy solutions. So we have a wide ranging portfolio, but it's not because we're choosing all these issues to work on. It's because we're identifying like what we're really good at is finding the people who are, you know, really um, special, you know, and, and we figure out, you know, if we can lend a hand um, to make them better, um, then it becomes a project. So we got a bunch of those. We're 17 years old. We've probably done 500 of those projects. It's super cool. So that's half of, you know, the, the equation, the other half. And the think tank is called Sagamore Institute um, that you mentioned. I was part of the founding team and uh, the other institution, the other nonprofit is called Commonwealth and it's an impact investing platform. Um, they sound a little bit like really different things, but they really are quite related in that um, to solve a big problem, um, it's good to learn stuff you don't know about the problem. It's called research. Yeah. Um, to scale winning solutions, it's called consulting. Um, and it looks like growth, which looks call investment. And so our research consulting and investing sequence is actually very related in much of what we do. But the methods, if you will, are, are different between the two organizations. So think tank typically relies on government grants or contracts or, you know, private philanthropy, that sort of thing. Whereas the investment business is either uh, charitable capital, which we can use for investment, it's a little widget we could talk about, but we also move private capital um, into impact investing deals. So happy to, you know, maybe unpack that if at all you're interested in the sort of the organizational construct, but to keep with our conversation yep. where the impact investing stuff is animating most of my, my thinking is that um, to solve big problems, um, this is why I was sort of emphasizing the point of, I like to see Suitcase City um, as a underperforming economy um, because I want it to be a high-performing economy. And so impact investing enables me to do that because I get to think about whether we could get some businesses in there to move and to, to prove that we could be successful um, or we could think about plussing up the ones that are, and we can think about plussing up the ones that are there. We can think about why people aren't employed and, you know, and, and participating in healthy ways. We can think about financial services. Um, I don't judge harshly, maybe I do, but um, payday lenders, um, because I'm tempered by the fact that they're providing a service. And so I have way more energy. I should, this is a better way to say it, because I actually do judge a lot of payday lending, but I have way more energy to be able to say, well, why don't we compete with them? You know, there's money to be made there, mm -hmm. if you will, meaning that you can make a viable business. But if nobody else is showing up to serve these people, how can I judge harshly the one person who is, even though they're kind of raping and pillaging and too often, but they're but they're providing a service and those families need to pay rent next week. And so if they need a dollar, you know, fifty dollars, five hundred dollars yep. to pay rent. They got to get it somewhere. And a payday lender is better than actually some alternatives to that. Um, but wouldn't it be better if there was a digital bank, a church-based credit union, or there's all these other scenarios that'd be way better? Well, let's think about that. And the impact investing vehicle that we operate thinks about that kind of stuff. 
And there are amazing solutions out there um, that most of us don't know about. You know, so this helps. This is again why it's helpful to have a think tank around because the research and consulting piece throws a lot of good ideas our way. You know, to make investments, um, and uh, and so that is is thinking about the higher purpose of business, um, and and maybe maybe this other point too, since you wanted to make it personal, um, I'm passionate about um, our neighbors who hurt. And so coming up with ways where they can be, you know, healthy is, is inspiring. Um, I don't know how to do that, but finding people who know how to do that is what I do um, in my job. Um, but the other th problem I, I, I love working on are our friends who have a lot of means, but who don't have a lot of purpose, you know, who've, who've worked really hard to create the good life, and in many respects they have, but in some key respects they haven't. And so they've realized that um, they're made for something more. And so to be able to speak to them about how to use their capital in all forms, intellectual capital, yeah, social sure. capital, financial capital, against some of the biggest objects in society. So how about we, we engage you, you know, wealthy people in the church, um, oftentimes they're treated like ATM machines. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, can I have some money so I can go do ministry? Um, but wouldn't it be cool to say, hey, you want to get in the game? Like, are you good at stuff? Like, just like we're talking about the welfare person. Are you good at stuff? Like, let's get you in society. How about we treat the, the high-performing business guy as a problem solver that they are? They're like, you meet a rich person. I'm going to show you somebody that created wealth that knows how to solve problems. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what they do all day long solve problems, grow stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what really good business people do. How about we help them solve problems and grow stuff in a way that glorifies God and makes Tampa Bay awesome. You know, that's, they're not invited into that job very often. And so impact investing enables us to, to address a different form of poverty, which is a yeah. purpose poverty. And so right. Commonwealth, um, and, and we don't see either of these two as victims. We don't see the poor as a victim. We don't see the rich person as a victim. We see them as just, I mean, there's just promise in every direction. Like yep. if, if we got half of this right, um, you know, it'd be you know, amazing. And so it is amazing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's kid in a candy store stuff to be able to work on this. What, um, how would you define success? Um, personally or in the world? Sure. All the above? All yeah. The above. Yeah. I think, uh, I think purpose is a pretty cool, you know, thing to hang out on. Um, you know, knowing what you're made for, you know, one of my friends who's a believer said there's two really good days in life. Um, um, when you discover kind of whose you are and, and you, get to meet Jesus and, and understand that this thing's about a bigger deal than you thought it was, you know, it's about eternity and he's the way to get there. And, and so you, you sort of lock that in and, and live a different life. And then you discover what you were made for, you know, and, and you get clear on that. Um, and uh, that's, that's uh, probably as good a definition of success as I, I could come up with. And what that, turns into is a lot of other forms of success 
you know, because if I can live a life of purpose, there's a whole lot good about that. But if I am living a life of purpose, um, that means I'm not just worried about me, which is a really good way to be unhappy, you know, is, is to be just worried about me. It just doesn't seem like it. We all bought buy into some consumerism, you know, sort of self thing. I get, we all have to battle it. I battle it. But, um, but the joy that's discovered when we're serving and when we're living for something bigger than self, um, it's like, man, why didn't I sign up for this earlier? What over the course of your life career, what this could be personal, professional, doesn't matter, but like, what would you say, like, what's one of the biggest challenges that you can remember having to face? Mm, um, well, we could put them in categories, you know, but sure. the, uh, um, you know, I would be super personal, to be honest with you. At first, you know, I think of my personal failures, you know, when I've hurt people, when I've committed great sins, you know, and think about how I've offended God and how I've hurt people and think, okay, that was self-inflicted. Um, but I put that in my highest category of challenges, you know, they just, they were internal, like I caused it. And so I have to deal with the damages of that. Um, and I have to own it. Like that's, that's a problem on like multiple levels. So, mm -hmm. so I've created challenges in my life. You know, I think for the Christian, um, the beauty of that is grace. And when you realize there's forgiveness um, and you think, you know, it creates this gratitude, um, worship for the believer. Yep. Um, but also humility because like okay <laughs> you know and and this is this is my testimony really which is that the town I grew up in that I told you about um rewarded good citizenship and actually being a good Christian was like being a good citizen like being a boy scout like you shook someone's hand looked good them in neighbor. the eye yeah. yeah good neighbor and so I thought that's what a good Christian was and I also thought I was one of them <laughs> you know I was like a really good kid and uh, so when I made really big mistakes um, and, you know, as a young adult committed, you know, sins I'm ashamed of, yep. um, like, guess I'm not a good person, you know, guess I can't trust me. And so, you know, becoming then um, more dependent on um, God, um, who is perfect, um, it, it helped me get clear on who I was and who I want. And, uh, and it, it freed me up, you know, to live a, a much better life because, um, I was sort of in the right place. So that grace meets, meets, uh, kind of a humility that comes from, um, getting a clear view of, uh, self, um, was, was, was kind of how, how I'd answer that. Um, I mean, that's like the, the candid version, you know, there's other, other forms of challenge, but, um, um, but that's probably the, wow. the leading category. Well, and honestly, even like looking, I mean, God, you're in the course of your life is going, let's solve multiple unsolvable problems simultaneously, basically. It's like the, <laughs> the, but you know, you remind, you know, um, I, I love this line. I, Nietzsche said like, who has a, why can endure anyhow. Yeah. There is like, because of that thing that you're saying, 
and that redemption and that identity and that calling, you can tackle impossible problems. You know, I mean, I, um, I, uh, to another quote that I, I like carry a lot of these around that I've picked up over the years, but like, you know, and God only knows what St. Francis ever actually said, but like he's <laughs> credited with saying, you know, start by doing what's necessary and then do what's possible. And suddenly you're doing the impossible. And for me, um, that's actually been a template that I actively apply. Like that's my business plan. Um, because <laughs> I'm like, well, this neighbor is hungry. So you, sh- you need, they need food. You need to take responsibility for your neighbors. You need to look out for your people. You need to find some damn food, grow some food, do what is needed and do it in relationship and do it together. But then like, and so, you know, we did that, but it would be like a beat up pickup truck with cardboard boxes and it looks like hell, but it's like necessary. So forgiving all of the undignifying um, and food violations that, you know, it's like I drove a truckload of like yogurt in the Florida sun to, you know, it's like, but I did what I could. And then eventually I go, man, what's possible? Like, like we're in the middle of building out this like mobile grocery thing right now. And I'm, I'm building this refrigerated. I'm like, this could be beautiful. This could be dignifying. This could be, this could be better and try to do like, I don't know what's possible. What could we do when we work together? And then, yeah, you stand back and you're like, well, ultimately we have to try to solve impossible things. Right. Because we, you, this is an unacceptable scenario around us. And so we pour ourselves into it, just like our leader, like, just like the one, our Lord, the one who went before is like for this sake, but that, that, I mean, I, I love that answer because it is like, well, that actually answers how you can tackle the other challenges because it's like, well, you, you, <laughs> because then Sisyphean effort can be made enjoyable even if it never seems like it'll ever accomplish anything because it's just i'm in love with the process and with the work and with the call like it's a privilege to get to know these neighbors and walk with folks and do that kind of thing and like since the day i met you man i've been so grateful for you i mean when i first i actually didn't get to meet you the first time i saw you because i actually came to something you spoke at here in town i may have like I, I think I snuck out the back, honestly, because like I don't like all that social mingling stuff. So I just bounced when you were done talking or whatever. I don't think I actually got to meet you that day, but but I never forgot it. And then when I did have the privilege to sit down with you, I was like, man, like you confused me, frankly, because I didn't know. I mean, you're quite institution like you worked in the White House. You're <laughs> like there. You just you're you are like where it's like you're you are another world in every way that i i can point to and yet when we talked i was like man i this dude gets it in a way that i can't explain um and this conversation has been helpful to unpack it from childhood experience to like the work you've been able to do and i'm i'm so appreciative for you because in the you know we have mutual friends that i'm like well we can say the same thing but we are not heard the same way. Right. And it's, um, 
it's just a powerful thing. And I'm super grateful, you know, that the diversity among us that God gives yeah, truth in different voices in different places for different reasons. And yet we come together and go, Ken, on the in harmony in some sense like that. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So I, I, um, well, I'm curious, is there anything? So like you said before, um, I don't know, somewhere along the way, like everyone has something to offer. Yeah. Everyone can do like in man, actually it was, a, I did write this down. I don't know if I could find it, but that you're like, the, I'm just going to say off the top of my head, it won't be a quote exactly, but like one of the benefits of a small town is you're needed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I don't know if this ties together, but I think of another quote, Dr. King talked about our, our technological advances. And he's like, we've like, look at us. We're in different States. We're having a conversation. Like we're sitting around a fire together. It's like, we're together. <laughs> and he's like, our technology said this a while ago, it's gotten quite more true, but our technology has made the world into a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But, but our, our, we have our technological advances has made us a neighborhood, a little town. Uh, but our, but our moral development has been far outpaced by that. And we have not made it a brotherhood mm-hmm. and that, that work is what's ahead of us. And when you say, well, the benefit of a small town is you're needed. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is the, the benefit of a small earth is that you're needed, right? This is a cozy <laughs> little planet we're on Yeah, is it we're together in this and everybody listening, whether they're listening uh, on, on, you know, homeless people have smartphones, right? So like listening yeah, yeah, on your smartphone yeah. under a bridge or from an executive office somewhere or whatever, it's like, everybody has something to offer and something to do. And, and I, and I, and you're needed. They're all needed. And I'm just curious, like to everybody listening, like what, like, I want to hear, like, I don't know, is there any specific encouragements or asks related to your lifelong effort? even, um, that you would have for those listening. And then, and then also that's at the broader level. And then particularly like places, maybe they can support or get in touch or look you guys up more, find stuff, just like kind of plug whatever you would like basically. But like, I just want to give you some time to just make some asks. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you. Um, the, and those are very generous words, by the way, that um, you shared about me. So that's, uh, that's a treasure. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, God be the glory, hmm. the way he's a redemptive God. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we work on on the think tank side, sort of the philosophical point is the duty of citizenship. Mm-hmm. So our founders who got a bunch right, a few pretty big things wrong, but um, the, the covenant, you know, the constitution, you know, that they wrote, um, was very well written, you know, the, the truths that are in that we just need to live, live up to them, but, right. um, it's so powerful, but their idea is so profound and so beautiful, which is that this thing, and you went global, I'll just stay U S for a sure. moment, um, is we're either going to figure this thing out together or not, you know, like, it does not matter as much who we elect as it does who we are as a citizen. I mean, it's just simply and profoundly true. Now, we don't think that is true. 
you know, we, we think that who is president is more important than who we are as a citizen. And we got to get better at that, you know, because the founders said this is a republic. You know, this is about all y'all. And part of your job is to figure out who you want to represent you. You know, that's not unimportant. That actually matters in Tallahassee. It matters in Washington. Um, it's actually very important because they're going to write the rules. And the guys that write the rules have a lot of power. And we want to live in a world where we got good systems all around us, you know, that, that reward good behavior and uh, yeah. um, get rid of bad behavior. So it, it matters, but it does not matter as much as how you treat your family and whether you're taking advantage of people as a payday lender or you're doing justice loans as a credit union. You know, what, what, what it looks like um, is going to be completely different for all of us. And that's just by design. Um, but what universal things can we get better at thinking about, which is, am I contributing? <laughs> you know, like it, doing a little reflection is not a bad idea for all of us. Like, am I, am I adding up for some, somebody else or am I, you know, given or taken, you know, um, that's not a bad process um, for us all to, and then to think about, you know, where these kind of higher forms of, of contribution could look like, you know, because being a little league coach could be more important than being the mayor. Um, if you're changing 12 lives that season that are going to be believing that there's somebody different than they used to be or otherwise would have been or whatever. So there's just, you know, there's no formula, you know, so we shouldn't pretend like there's, you know, I'm not going to be able to offer like these three steps. Um, but I think they're habits, you know, and the, what I love about the ancients, you know, the Greeks, is that they talked about habits. They talked about exemplaries. Um, people like you, John, you know, somebody who are like, wow, I, I just think that's about as good as it gets, you know, and I mean, he's living um, for something bigger than himself. You know, he's loving well. He's trying to get better every week. You know, these are just like, we need, we need more of that, you know, and, and it's just going to present a bunch of different ways. So, so I guess the big yeah. idea is, you know, let that fall on, whoever's listening, however, you know, it, um, it can hopefully in a, in a positive way, but, you know, with that duty of citizenship, which um, I think back to our founders would say had probably two expressions, which is to be better educated. So we should be thoughtful um, and better engaged. Those are probably the two forms it takes. So that's not a bad, if there's a formula, that's not terrible um, one to think about. Am I, and it's really hard today, you know, in the, um, in the knowledge economy, um, accelerated by social media, where there's too much information and not enough wisdom, you know, so how can we get to a place where we're, um, you know, paying attention to the right stuff? Um, you know, I heard a funny quip um, the other day about Elon Musk's first girlfriend or something like that. And it was, it was like, you know, what would he say, you know, if, if he heard this, this thing said about him on social media, she said, he wouldn't know, like, he doesn't, he doesn't go there. Like, he would be reading a book about Benjamin Franklin or some, you know, like, he would be paying attention to the big stuff, because he has to, to do big stuff. Now, he probably is active on social media. But nonetheless, the point, I think people who are successful, keep the main thing, main thing, and they think bigger. And so it's, it's a really good idea to be a 
um, to get out of the cul-de-sacs that we can easily get into and, and you know, think bigger and better. Um, and then to, uh, to, you know, live for something bigger than yourself and, and, and find better ways to engage, which brings me to the, the other question you asked, which is, um, you know, the ask, you know, I, I love what we're able to do um, with Commonwealth Tampa Bay. You know, Commonwealth Tampa Bay is uh, a platform strategy. What we're trying to do is build a community of investors and entrepreneurs that say, what if we did business better? You know, what if we could, and this isn't, by the way, so much of this podcast has been about poverty fighting, and that's awesome. Um, but that's not what impact investing is all about. Impact investing is about that, but it's also about just building beautiful things. How can we accelerate, you know, one of our events we just held in, uh, at the Embark um, was on minority entrepreneurship. You know, so we put $360,000 of investment in four uh, minority entrepreneurs. John, you attended that event and we were able to show off talent. You know, so what we were saying is there are black and brown business builders here that the mainstream economy doesn't know about, which means they're losing an opportunity to make money because these companies are going to go make money and they should participate. So let's not feel sorry for a minority entrepreneur and, and you know, and somehow see them lesser than they are. Let's be impressed by the talent that's there. And then let's acknowledge that for minority entrepreneurs that have a tougher go of it because of the systemic stuff they've had to battle through, um, that there might be some things we need to do to plus up um, minority entrepreneurs, which would include women as well and, and others marginalized to say, it's probably in our best interest um, that we figure out better ways for them to win. Because by the way, if we want Suitcase City to be a different set of stats than, than you have, then uh, um, we, we want to invest in those type of entrepreneurs because that's who's going to create jobs in those neighborhoods. Yep. And so, um, so anyway, Commonwealth Tampa Bay is thinking about those things, uh, doing some research, doing some consulting, doing some investing. National Christian Foundation is our partner. They're amazing. Andrew Prilliman, our mutual friend and the team. And so that community is uh, enlarging and uh, um, we'd love to chat with folks that want to learn more about that. And I love it. Um, you said, and I think you fleshed it out pretty well just now, but I wanted to like circle back to it. Um, oh man, I jotted it. I wrote too many things down as you were talking. Cause every, I was like, I want to write everything you're saying down. It's so good. The higher purpose of business. Yeah. Yeah. The higher calling in the marketplace. Just, just yeah, say I a think few there's... more words on that. Well, I think there's actually several dimensions to that, to that statement. Um, one so. is um, business has always been an uplift to society. Um, I mean, business by definition, built on trust, um, finding out what you're good at, rewarding it with like salaries and like um, training. Like I need you. It's like being a coach on a football team. Like I'm going to coach you up whether you're on the line, because I don't want people to sack our quarterback or a wide receiver, because I want you to catch passes and score touchdowns. Like, I'm going to coach you. I'm going to make you a better version of yourself, because I want to win. I want mm -hmm. our team to win. And you need to be like, way better at what you are than, you know, at your performance than you are now, because um, you get better, we get better. And, and so that's awesome. You know, that competition is awesome, too. You know, so like, somebody else is selling what we're selling. And okay, we probably should be 
better price point or we should be faster or better or whatever. All of that creates uplift. Now, there are things like greed and corruption and rule breaking. That's bad stuff. And that happens in business like it happens in every other part of society. But business by itself, the free market system um, is just like the greatest engine of human flourishing then that exists. Um, so do we think that about business? Is that how, you know, are we, are we sort of celebrating, you know, corporate citizenship? If that is a sidecar foundation that gives out grants, um, you know, for summer club or something like that, um, you know, that's not corporate citizenship. I mean, that's philanthropy, you know, it's, but, you know, figure creating jobs, that's corporate citizenship, you know, creating a product that makes people, you know, have a better life. That's cool. You know, so I just think we, at one level, we just need to think better about business and society because business has been awesome. Yeah. And we should also call out business when it's not awesome. Like mm -hmm. that is usury payday lenders. You're not doing a beautiful business. You're doing a valuable service, but you're doing it in such an ugly way. Mm -hmm. Who are you uplifting buddy? Like how, you know, why don't you? And so let's compete with them to my point earlier, but, but let's call out abuses. Let's call out differences, you know, and, and, and if we could be in this competition of making business better, you know, what do we want for Tampa Bay? We want the economy to grow. So there's more opportunities and a better life available. So to use your bang your drum. So more people have freedom and then it's up to them. You know, now that I have more agency, which would be the term of art, I can make better decisions. And if I decide to be selfish and whatever, then, you know, that's on me, but we should also say that's ugly, you know, mm -hmm. but, but let's also say more what's beautiful, you know, so how can we reward business that's just uplifting, you know, so, so we need to be better at that. So the higher calling in the marketplace is first saying, you know, let's pull business out of the construct that it's just too easily, like that's for the rich getting richer you know, like, that's just a lazy statement, you know, let's, let's, let's be smarter about what, what business is and what it can be. Um, and let's reward competition and, and celebrate, you know, the noble. So the other side of the higher calling of the marketplace is really just um, the experience of the business person themselves, you know, are, are they, are they getting to live their, their full life um, in their vocation? You know, we, we talked at the top about my dad as a guidance counselor, trying to help students figure out what they were um, um, good at. And um, I talked about my friend who's a believer saying it's just a, it's a really good day in life when you discover what you're made for. Um, you know, that second part of the test after figuring out why you were made and by whom and salvation. And so, um, so I guess that, that, that brings me to the same point about the higher calling in the marketplace for um for my friends you know i just love seeing my friends do that well when they're made for business um to see them use their gift is inspiring but then to see them um you know experience a reward that's more than just status or salary you know it's like actual contribution um, i think the church has not helped out for a while on this, um, they haven't really created a language for it to help them understand what it means to um, bring shalom to Tampa Bay when you're creating jobs and you're um, otherwise creating, uh, you know, 
improved neighborhoods or beautiful places to live or whatever. That's good stuff. You know, we should celebrate it. And uh, the derivative of what they do, which is their philanthropy, should not be the big object, um, but rather, you know, what they're bringing. The, and, and then, you know, a little bit of challenge, you know, which we can give each other about you, you bring in your best self, you know, and, and are you bringing a lot of value to others around you? And so helping people see that there is a higher calling to the marketplace. Um, there is more purpose to your gift set than, um, you know, just accomplishing some, uh, you know, some personal goals. And so the reason we want that is because there's a lot of joy on the other end of that, getting that right. Are you familiar with um, Dorothy Sayers' essay, Why Work? Uh, no. So definitely go read it. I, in fact, I tried to email the family and ask if I could read it on here because they own the copyrights to it which I'm not yeah. sure how much I care. Cause what are they going to do? But like, yeah, I think I, I want to just safe. read it on an episode because it's so good. You should definitely read it. But she, so this is after the war and, or no, it's during the war, I believe world war two. And she, and she's looking at all of the changes that we've made culturally. We're reusing things. We're, we're, everybody's working together We're, everyone's putting victory gardens in there's like and she and everyone's limiting consumption and she's just looking at like how beautiful some of these disciplines were like look at what we're capable of yeah. but we're doing it for the art of war and the question that keeps haunting me is will we do it for the for the art of peace later on and and wow. but the framework for the 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 essay is actually just about work and and so she'll say something like rather than asking what does it pay we should ask is it good mm. and there's like a litany of these kind of reflections that have like i i feel like shaped by these things but as you were talking i just assumed oh he knows dorothy sayers <laughs> uh, because because of it because kindred right and so i i just read that it's a short little essay you can just download it whatever and i will probably uh love it your encouragement and just read it on an episode here because everybody needs to be familiar with this and there's no audio version of it and i could probably read it um i think it's all about attribution just 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 to attribute the right source and you're good note it we're good. good is that true okay because I, <laughs> I i uh so yeah. i wanted to um on yeah, everything me, go ahead yeah let me let me compliment that point because it's okay. a powerful one and i also think it brings a little bit of a um kind of commercial back to to commonwealth that's why we call it commonwealth you know we um yep. we believe that wealth um can be um put to good purpose you know mm -hmm. to the common good um we think that this uh you know, settling for the um, the lower domains of, of the financial transaction is just is just uh, a bad trade for both parties. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, debate around whether the um, stimulus cap in money was was good or bad. You know, yeah. it, it certainly was. We'll see. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it it certainly was helpful to a lot of people. Might have been harmful to some people, and so. But it's, it's a, 
it could be a rational decision for somebody in a low income kind of yucky job to say, I'll take 80% of what I would have gotten otherwise and not have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that may be a economically rational decision to make. It's, it's a really bad plan, you know, mm -hmm. to um, exclude yourself from the workforce and to, you know, rely on something for nothing. And, you know, it's corrosive. Um, but, but they, they're probably not thinking about that, you know, so it's a really good idea for yeah. us to help our neighbors who are fragile, learn that, um, you know, the, the power of long-term thinking, you know, that there's a, um, there's too little financial literacy um, in our communities. We need to plus that up. But what's even more important than financial literacy is economic literacy. Mm -hmm. um, when you learn the keystone economic principles of say scarcity um, or opportunity cost, um, those aren't financial transactions. Those are life skills. And if I realize I could have this, but then I can't have that. Um, and so when you talk about poverty being more than financial, it's you know, short-termism versus preparing yeah. for a better future, which then creates options the way you were talking powerfully before. But on the other side of the equation, if I'm buying the lie that it's all about my, my bank account, you know, or my future security, you know, if I put the whole, bet the whole ranch on just having more money, but then I realize I'm empty, that's just a bad trade too. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being extreme to make a point. Um, it's because there's variations of the theme along this continuum. But the same point is somewhat comically true on both ends is that, you know, we can just buy a lie on money and it's just, it's just, it's just a bad, it's a bad trade. Life is just so much bigger than that. And it has to do with human dignity and it has to do with purpose. And we get those things right. We're going to be uh, a lot healthier. That's what Shalom is. That's right. That's right. It's so good. The, and I love the, the, the way you were kind of bringing that together and like with the kind of the higher call of the marketplace and the establishment of Shalom and wholeness, common, commonwealth, common good. Um, and then you kind of like highlight, like we got to get better at thinking about business. Like it's too easy to go, you know, this is just people trying to get rich or whatever. And like, it's, it's half of the story. And yet it's, there's a reason people interpret things that way. And like, yeah, but look at, you know, I don't know the, I mean, I don't know if it's the movie, but the Wolf of Wall Street comes to mind just as like a, 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 a image, you know what I mean? Or whatever. But the, but there is something there. Um, and I, so for me, when I started going from, Cause I, you know, for our store, our origin story for starting businesses wasn't, I mean, everything we've ever done has been entrepreneurial in that. It's like making it work, calling something into being, but a lot of times that was like building intentional community and planting a garden. And like, it, it, it was like, we're sowing seeds, we're building tomorrow. We're doing those kind of things through any, by any means necessary or any, any, any acceptable means necessary or whatever. And, and, and yet, Along the way, I, you know, Jesus said something like, you can't serve God and money. Um, and I, you know, part of my process of theological reflection is, or philosophical reflection is take an idea. This is kind of what I heard you saying with like research, <laughs> try it. It's like part of research, right? It's like, okay, I have an idea, but I got to go try it out. 
see how it fits or whatever. And there was a part of me where I'm like, can we build a business and make money and grow it and engage in marketplace as good neighbors, as something here to serve, uh, as something that, and it, and it was just a big question mark, maybe still is a question mark. It's like, can we not lose our way? And there is a, just in my own experience go, man, every day there's like a battle of lordship that takes place over yeah. a business. Yeah. And, and it goes, listen, like when a guy comes in with a busted up bike and no money, and he's like, this is going to take our mechanic all day and all these repairs need to get done. And he's not gonna be able to pay, but 17 cents or something. And you have mm -hmm. another customer who can pay top dollar for let's say easier repairs or even equivalent repairs. And like what, you know, it's like really hard in the, in the concrete every day. And I think business yeah. illustrates that life illustrates that. And I, I, um, you're familiar with, um, I'm going to jump, I'll, I'm going to jump to something else, but it's connected here. Victor Frankel, you know who he is? Yeah, sure. And sure. he wrote, you know, man's search for meaning, which was like, that's right. Memoirs. And yeah. you know, I think about that a lot because he illustrated like these terrible conditions of the concentration camps that all these just good Jews were in. Like, here's yeah. a bunch of good people, good neighbors, whatever. But he's like, but the condition exposed something different. Like they were made of something different. Some of them became monsters. They would lie, steal, cheat. They would work with the Gestapo. They would do whatever it took by any means necessary yeah. Stay alive. Yeah. And then there was another one, the other side is like something like saints and heroes. They would like give up their last morsel of food for their neighbor. Right. And he's like, and he just, he's like, and then he built all of logotherapy kind of out of reflecting on that. And for me, um, this has been maybe the heart of that question. It to tie it back to the business thing is like, cause I understand, let's say the way of Jesus is something like, a willingness to die like that survival isn't ultimately important or that something bigger exists that can overcome death. And actually death is not your greatest enemy or the greatest thing to fear. And in our own lives, like I know if I get attacked in an alley and, or, or whatever, it's like the, the um, like I'm not a dude you want to back into a corner, right? Like, <laughs> like it just, something turns on, you know, and it's like survival takes over and I'm scared of that. I know it. Like, I really know it. And I'm like, watch it. I need to like, it, it has a seat at the table. Cause it's an important part of who I am. It's gotta be integrated. It's a big part of everything I do even, but it's gotta be like guided, tutored, you know, governed basically because there's a monster there's a monster. It'll rip your face off, you know? And it's like, but I, I believe in kind of an ethic that that has to be submitted or surrendered to. Right. Yeah. There, there is a Lord. There's a, a greater call, a greater purpose, a greater power that that has to be uh, under. And so anyway, for me, like, and I, uh, you know, we are capable of all kinds of evil and horrendous acts especially when survival is on the line like in a concrete way like we, we will do and 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 soldiers can speak to this like man i don't know how to recover because i went not even human 
whatever that was right in those situations. And then I go, Hmm, something to me says not wanting to die as an ultimate priority will lead to demonic behavior. Like that's, I go, man, if that, that is not. And so it's like, that's what I think Victor Frankl's pointing out. And, and, and the thing is about institutions, because what is a, what is an institution? Like part of its job is to continue. Right. So the challenge to the individual is the willingness to, to lay down your life for something bigger than yourself. Right. And I go, well, can a business be willing to die? And in each of those conditions, can I go, no, like I'd rather die than not function this way. Like it's, that's not what an investor wants to hear. Like it's not what, but it's like, no, there are some things that it would be better to just die than to compromise on. And, and, and I think, and this, this lens has been really helpful, but it's also really hard. Like I have, I am in a position as an executive director of a small nonprofit. I got on where I was saying like the, the, the demands made on the incumbent, like I'm familiar with just as like the logic of this little baby institution makes demands for its own perpetuation and growth and, and, and whatever it's kind of given to. And I go, so does the Oval Office. And so does every seat of power. Like there's a logic to the seat, like, and it has a job and whoever sits in it does that job, which is why, like you said, kind of doesn't really matter. Like it makes differences who's in mm-hmm. that seat, but the overwhelming trajectory of it kind of does what it does. And so for me, like some fundamental question of can't serve God and money and the challenge of as a Christian building business, and it's a question mark, can it be, can it serve its higher purpose? Can yeah. it be a kingdom um, tool submitted to the, to, the, to the kingdom vision for our world? Can it be a good neighbor? Yeah. Providing value. And I, and I think a lot of what you're saying in your work kind of like really uh, uh, cast vision for that thing, but also um, back to the like, because I think you're right. Business is what changes the world. Economy is like, that's just how we order our household as a town, yeah. as a neighborhood, as yeah. a country, as a world. It's like, that's what that is. And it's really important. Yeah, but yet I have a lot of understanding and compassion for the the psychopathic uh, or sociopathic. <laughs> you know what was that? That there's a documentary about corporations and they do like a mental health assessment and they're like they highlight the sociopathic nature of these things and it's like because they don't care who they hurt and they don't care what they crush or who they oppress and it's like no that's a thing that's a real thing and it illustrates why like you're saying like that does exist and it it has to get steered or submitted to something else but it's interesting to me when i think about i mean everything uh individuals churches families um like that somehow and i don't know i mean i don't know if if that stirs any thoughts yeah you were talking it just kind of brought this back to mind for me which has been kind of a central question this whole project well that's there was also there was both a lot of wisdom there and a lot of just really important fields that we need to till um, to, to kind of figure some stuff out together. So a couple of things maybe in response. One is 
Jesus did not say that money is evil. He said the love of money is evil. And so when, you know, when we... I did not say that, by the way. No, no, no. You, you didn't say People, that. People, okay, I'm, right, right, right. I'm correct, making correct, the general correct, point. Correct, yeah, correct, no, correct, you, okay. You, Go, yeah, I was like, yeah. does it? <laughs> no, you said, uh, yeah, I wasn't scolding you. Sure, nope, got no, money. No, <laughs> I was like, bring it on, but just yeah, get right. it right. <laughs> no, yeah, right, right. No, you said uh, can't serve... Um, God and money. God and money, which is correct. I was, I was making a different point. So maybe I just did that. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Sorry. um, But, but I wanted to, to, to just emphasize the point that he didn't say that money was evil, um, nor did you, Um, but he, (laughs) (laughs) um, but he did say the love of money is, is, is evil. And that's Mm -hmm. the point. Um, That's, that's really the big point here is that um, it's just, what's your idol? You know, what is ultimate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's what's ultimate, and um, and that's just that's just a really good question, you know, mm-hmm. for us to do business with. Are we giving? So the way that maybe I'd put it in more kind of layman's terms is, um, money is a very good support actor, but it is not a good lead actor. So if we make it all about the money, I mean, we're just not going to land well um, because it ain't about the money. I mean, money is fuel. To buy to product, what and it's, yep, that's right. It's a it's means. A fuel. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's a means. I mean, it's a fuel to what end? And if we spent some good time, and you just took us on a little tour of some of this, if we spent some time thinking about what it's fueling toward, um, that'd be useful. That'd be useful for us individually, and it'd be useful for us corporately. And then, and then, this is why I don't like the lazy version of you know, name calling and mark. You know, just sort of is to say, all right, um, you know, if there are abusive practices, if there's less than beautiful things being being done, what do we do about that? So, so conversation maybe for, for another time is, uh, but as an illustration is, is investments. You know, one of my um, favorites in the space that we're now occupying in the impact investing world is Eventide out of Boston. Even what? And Tide? It's called Eventide. It's a large mutual fund, but it's based on, on, on values. And so the founder was a Harvard uh, medical school student who was trying to think through where to put his retirement funds that he was earning for the first time. So not a lot of money. And, but he, was, he cared enough about money and theology um, and morals um, to think, well, what do I want to invest in? Now, most of us think, how do I get 6% or 8%? You know, we're just thinking about our gain. You know, mm-hmm. he's thinking about what do I want to invest in? Now, he's putting $10,000 into some large corporations. His money does not matter to that company. <laughs> but he, he thought it did, you know, and he thought because, and this is a really big point, he says investment is ownership. That's right. Which is exactly what it is. But that's not how we think about it. We think investment is a way to gain, um, which it also is. But it's, it's that in a smaller way. Um, and mm. so if we think about it, so what Eventide is, and this is a commercial for them, is they pick companies that make the world a better place. As a matter of fact, I work with someone on my team named Amy Sherman, um, who wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. And the book um, um, is built around Proverbs eleven ten. When the righteous man prospers, the city will rejoice. Mm. 
And she says, that's something that should fall awkwardly on your ears. Cause normally when somebody prospers, there's jealousy and resentment, not rejoicing. Why is that? Because that person is probably just taking care of their own, you know, or themselves. But when the righteous prosper, um, then they're the ones who are the Zadakim of the Old Testament, you know, holding court at the city gate um, with all the fancies. And yet they look at the blind, lame beggar, walk over, touch them, show love like Jesus did, um, which they weren't supposed to do. And, and then they, they, you know, would disenfranchise themselves to give franchise to someone else. Well, Amy's point in the book is that is not something that gets a golf clap. Oh man, that's really nice to you. That poor, lame, blind beggar, whoever, they're like freaked out. Like you're not even supposed to be looking at me and you're like touching me and like putting yourself out to help me. Like this makes no sense. Like this is, my head's gonna explode. I, I don't know how, why this is happening. Um, well, that's a city rejoicing. And so, so her point about the book is, is that the higher calling in the marketplace basically in Tampa Bay? Like, is that, is that what's going on? Because we're built for that kind of stuff. And so Eventide um, used her book actually in their slogan. Um, they, they talk about investing that makes the world rejoice. Well, that'd be awesome. You know, what if, what if uh, we made money for our retirement accounts? Because that'd be really, really good for us to do for our families. That's responsible. That's, that feels good. That's, that would make a lot of people in our family rejoice that we could have a good retirement, um, even though retiring is a bad idea, but that's a different conversation. It's financial security <laughs> financial security is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and giving ourselves options and freedom like you preached on earlier is a good idea. But, um, but nonetheless, um, this rejoicing, you know, is such a powerful thing. Well, but investing, you may know this story, but investor... Um, protest is really what led to the um, end of apartheid. Um, we talked about Wilberforce earlier, but it was a very powerful shareholder protest inside, I forget which American company that said, we should not be doing business with South Africa. Um, it's just wrong to prop up this government that's disenfranchising half its population or whatever. And they had such an effective shareholder protest in 1971 or whatever that the company pulled out and that led to some dominoes um, that that ended up being a part of what ended apartheid so that's an elaborate it's not all about Mm. protest but if we think weird stuff is going on like with with, uh, artificial intelligence or the social media companies or whatever like investors actually have a role here you know so we could so so these are just illustrations that in micro and macro ways, um, if we were just a little more thoughtful and a little bit more noble, you know, about what we did with our money, um, it's uh, pretty remarkable to think that we could already take what's a good thing, which is business and society and make it even better. So I'm going to let you go because I know it's getting late, but I, I want to just echo that, that line that investment is ownership because you know connected to my thoughts about poverty and freedom i think i think what i want to say to everyone that i know is to take ownership of the condition of your own 
neighborhood in your own city and invest like your your blood sweat and tears and money and time and whatever to create the alternatives that we all know are possible they're common dreams and i love that uh i, I just love it man i you know it's not it's so clean and it's technically true like oh i hold equity but but who cares about the equity uh, but but what's equitable or whatever, right? And like those, it's strange that some of these words overlap so much. Um, and I think there's something because there's something true at the heart of that. It's like, yeah, take ownership of it. Yeah, of it you all. just uh, you got the second, you, you got the first and the second best lines out of this pie. I mean, if we did equity for equity, um, that'd be pretty cool. It's very cool, man. Thank you so much for spending all this time. Thank you for all you've been working on with your entire life. And I know you'll keep it up and I hope that we can continue in this conversation. Cause there's like 17 different two hour bunny trails. I want to go down. Maybe we have our own show that we spin off. I don't know, but I love this. Thank you so much for your time. It's good stuff. I'm very grateful to be um, with you. Any chance I get, this was a blast and I look forward to seeing you in Tampa soon. You too. Hey, real quick before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you, and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit, but I want to invite you to join the conversation. I would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show. So if you would, please share, please subscribe, please leave feedback on the show, uh, rate it, uh, comment on socials. And then if you would, please, please, please consider supporting uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also uh, kind of my own work uh, with the podcast and with the well and well-built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash the work ethic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being a part of this conversation and this project.